Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I am Akego Okoye, and on the show today, I have the honor of hosting Africa's Queen of Media, Mo Abudu, founder and CEO of Ebony Life Media, one of the fastest growing multi-broadcast entertainment networks. Her first show, Moments with Mo, was the first syndicated talk show on African regional TV, airing in over 40 African countries. M.A., as she's fondly known, is a woman of first, and her story of grit and dedication to telling the African story will inspire you no matter where you are in your career or business journey. Let's get into it. Hi, Emma. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you today. Um, so where do I start? So um, you were born in England and and you came to live in Nigeria when you were seven. So what was that experience like? And um, were there any values that, that you still hold on to from, from the time with um, your grandparents? I appreciate very much the opportunity to share my story because each time I do, it gives me the opportunity to reflect on lessons I have learned, um, you know, best practice, what I should have, what I could have done better um, with the benefit of hindsight and all of that. So, so yes, so I'm coming back to Nigeria when I was seven. Um, in those very early times in the 70s, um, coming back to Nigeria by ship was hmm. um, something that many, 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 many African Nigerian parents did. Um, I guess a, f- a few probably did fly, but um, we took the two-week journey um, by ship. I was with my mom and my younger sister, um, Shola. Um, she was one and I was seven. And we got to a papa port. And of course, I mean, I had met with my uncles and aunties in London and I was very used to being amongst, um, you know, my people and black people. But when we got to, when we got to, a Papa Port, I don't think in my entire life that I had ever, ever seen the entire, my, all my family must have just come to say, okay, we are here to meet you. And I said to my mom, I was like, mom, why don't you leave me alone? Why don't you leave me alone? And I was holding on to her, you know, for dear life. And, um, but um, eventually it, it, it all went well. Um, the great thing about family is family will always be family. I mean, I was just totally, you know, adorned with so much love and, you know, I, I'd never eaten so much food. I mean, I was trying out all these new dishes and, you know, because in, I mean, in London, I mean, we didn't really eat that much Nigerian food. So I was trying out all these different things and just getting to meet family and my cousins and everyone. And it was just such um, a beautiful start to a new life. Yeah. I mean, I have to just say to, you know, to anyone out there that we should never be afraid of going home. I mean, home is one of those places that um, if you've never been to, it's funny because you call it home, but you've never been there. Hmm. Um, but it felt very comfortable. It was like putting on an old pair of shoes um, and just just fitting in was 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 a beautiful experience for me. Um, and then within a short while of, of, of being in Lagos, my mom, she was in her early 30s. She had a nine to five job. Um, and in those days, it was very customary again to live with your grandparents. Um, so here I was. I, I went off to Ondo to go live with my grandmother, an experience again, that was, I will never forget. It's made me who I am today. Hmm. She taught me a lot of things about hard work and getting up in the morning and 
integrity and always speaking the truth and knowing who you are. Um, and it was, it was, it was a great opportunity, even though I was only there for a short number for four years, they were my most formative years, um, before I came back to England again, but I really enjoyed my time with my grandmother and it taught me a lot, um, about just being strong, hmm. you know, I, I mean, I, when I went back to Nigeria, I couldn't speak Yoruba. I, the only language I could speak was English. I had to learn very quickly how to speak Yoruba. Um, I couldn't speak Ondo because Ondo is the language spoken in Ondo, but I, I just, I mean, I understand every single word. So tomorrow my mother converses with me in Ondo and I understand it, but I can't speak it. But I had to learn Yoruba very quickly because all the other kids um, would make fun of me for not being able to speak Yoruba. So I had to learn how to speak Yoruba very quickly. And I thank God I mastered that as my second language. <laughs> no, but it was a good time. It was a good time with my grandmother. Very good time. That's lovely. That's lovely. So you went back to England as a 12-year-old, finished high school, you went to college, you you worked in HR. And then and then you you say that you moved back to Nigeria because you got married. And I wonder, would you have moved back to Nigeria if you hadn't gotten married? Um, I don't know, because that's the thing about life, right? In that Hmm. certain things happen to you based on the conditions and based on the circumstances around your life at that point in time. I had a good job in England. I had a, we had a home in England. We had our own home. There was really no rush to go back to Nigeria. I was, you know, my focus was very much staying here Hmm. and building up my business here. I mean, I was working as a recruitment consultant here. I was managing several branches. Hmm. Um, I could easily have stayed on and said, let me continue to do that. But at one point, I did want to branch out and set up my own recruitment consultancy firm in England. So I've always had big ideas about the things that I want to do. But then I was, I was married at the time, and, and, my hus- and my husband said, let's go back to Nigeria. And I thought, okay, why not? It's another adventure, right? Right. Um, so I packed my bags. We packed our bags. We rented our house. And we went back to Nigeria. And that was in 1992. You went back to Nigeria and you started, did you immediately start work with Exxon? No, no. When I first went back to Nigeria, now my last job after working in the recruitment consultancy firm was organizing conferences and exhibitions. I worked with a company in Stanmore called Pro, um, Profex and we're organizing conferences and exhibitions. And um, I said to this company that, listen, why can't I go and open a branch in Nigeria whereby I can start organizing these conferences and these exhibitions. It was right. very lucrative business. You can literally run a conference or an exhibition about anything. Would send mailing lists of invites out to the, whatever sector it was relevant to, be it the medical profession or the legal profession or the architectural profession. And people just used to, England being England, people would just register and say, I want to attend. And along with attendance, obviously comes a fee. And this is all this company did day in, day out. Um, I I was successful at that again. I Mm. ran my own exhibition for many years called the Corporate Credit Management Exhibition before I I decided to leave and set up my own company doing the same thing. So I went back to Nigeria um, organizing a massive exhibition um, and conference. And at the time, Chief Shoneko was then the head of the interim national government. This was during the Abacha era. Yes, a long time ago. <laughs> so I reached out to Chief Shoneko. I didn't know him. I just sent him a letter and I said, I would like you to be the special guest of honor at this conference. And he agreed. 
um, I reached out to Nexim Bank as a sponsor. Would you please? Because it was an it was a conference around importing and exporting in and out of Africa, you know. Right. And um, I reached out to um, Nexim Bank and said, "Would you sponsor?" They said yes. So it was a very successful conference. It held at the Sheraton in Ikeja. So at this time, I was going back to Nigeria thinking, this is going to be my business. I'm mm. going to keep organizing these conferences and exhibitions and getting people from all over Africa to come and attend these events. But Abacha comes into power, right? And mm. there are all kinds of sanctions against Nigeria. Mm. Now, at the time, I'd spoken to the European Union about right. partnering with me on running these events. But due to the sanctions and the political instability in Nigeria, they said no. So that put me out of a job. I then said, okay, let me go back to my recruiting. So from my very house where I was living, I said to my husband, can I just set up a little recruitment consultancy firm, you know, in the BQ and let me just try and find work for people. It it didn't work. It just wasn't successful. Then one evening, a friend of my husband's came around to the house and said, listen, there's a company called ExxonMobil. His name is Mr. Kunele Bute. He works um, with KPMG, who is actually now the managing partner for KPMG. He said, no, listen, why don't you go and, and apply? They're looking for a head of HR. Who knows? You may, you may get lucky. So I went in. It was a long process of, you know, one interview to the next. It was a massive opportunity, massive job. And I was thinking, oh, my mm. God, if I could only get this job, you know. And to God be the glory, after attending several interviews, I got, I landed the job. So wow. I was like, wow, that was really the big you know, the big eye opener to Nigeria for me in that now as the head of HR for Exxon, at the time it was still, they were called ESSO, but the name subsequently changed. My job was basically recruiting. Um, it was finding accommodation for all the expatriates. It was dealing with all the expatriate quotas. It was basically anything that had to do with HR and administration. That was my function for the company. Um, and I did this job, you know, for nearly 10 years. Um, and year 10, after the merger, they, you know, Exxon then merged with mobile and became Exxon mobile. I then decided that I'd been itching to do my thing for the longest time. And this company that I had set up to be organizing conferences and exhibitions was still there. I mean, I, it wasn't very active, but it was still a company that, that existed. Yeah. Um, and I think like into my fifth or sixth year um, mm. at Exxon mobile, I decided, you know what, what can I do? You know, that is a passion that I would love, you know, to get involved in. Um, and you must always disclose what you're doing to because, right. you know, ExxonMobil have, all, you know, being a U.S. company, then can, there can't be any conflict of interests. So I disclosed that I have this company, um, but it wasn't in conflict because it was basically offering HR training and services to other companies. But I never offered I never offered the service to ExxonMobil where I worked. Um, so I was doing this. I, I wasn't there day to day. I employed a couple of people to you know, to run Vic Lawrence for me. And it was running fairly okay. Um, and, you know, we were busy. We were getting jobs, um, consulting jobs, training jobs, you know. Um, and then four years later, I said to myself, I need to decide on, do I want to stay at ExxonMobil or do I want to move on and really do my own thing? Right. It was a, it was a difficult decision to make because... It was a good job. The opportunities were there. I'd been sent to America on, you know, training programs. You know, the world was my oyster. I mean, everything I wanted, I could get. And I had a great team um, of people that I was working with there who gave me all the due Mm. respect that I wanted. There was no reason for me to leave. But you wanted more. 
but I wanted more. I was itching to do more. And that's when I left. And everybody was like, Mo, are you crazy? How do you leave such a fantastic, wonderful job to go out into this world of hmm. you are not sure how you're going to pay salaries tomorrow? And I, Were you scared? Of course, I was scared, yes. I was scared, but in the middle, in the midst of being scared also was the fact that I had to work and make it work. Because mm. there's no point being scared and then just sitting back and doing nothing, right? So I right. had to rent an office. I had to, I had to rent an office. I had to employ people because now it was going to go from being just having a couple of people manage this process for me to me now doing this full time. So I started searching for an office. I found an office on Murio Kumola. We're probably in that building for like five or six years. I employed all these other consultants. We're doing consultancy work full time. But in the midst of setting up Vic Lawrence fully, also came the opportunity for me to start the Protea Hotel Oakwood Park, which is a purpose-built training and conference hotel. That's really interesting. So why did you take on this project? And more importantly, how did you fund it? The reason why I started that project was because through all the different training programs we were running, there weren't really any purpose-built training and conference facilities in Nigeria. So I saw that there was a gap in the market. Rather than have a training event next to someone having a wedding or someone having a party, it was important to create an environment where people could learn and they could learn without distractions. So that's where the idea for the Protea Hotel Oakwood Park came from. Now, I couldn't afford to do that project by myself. In those days, I was 35. Um, I think it was around the year 2000. Um, I had to get private equity funding, um, which meant that you can't own the entire thing by yourself. You have to be ready to give up, you know, a shareholding. I couldn't even afford to do it by myself. Um, So all I had acquired at the time was the Mm -hmm. land in terms of where we would situate um, this, you know, this training and conference facility. But outside of that was now going to be the Mm -hmm. money to build it. Now, when I told my architect to do a back of the envelope exercise, we didn't think it was going to cost $10 million. But, you know, as we started, you know, when you, the thing is that when you start dreaming of building, it can start like this. And before you know it, it's expanded into this massive idea. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I raise the money for this now? But, you know, um, I was fortunate enough. We did an info memo. It went out to several organizations. Right. Um, I remember going in to see a friend of mine, Femi Lijadu, the worked at UBA. And I said, Femi, please, how am I going to raise this money? And he said, listen, go and have a chat with Tony Fido. He's head of corporate finance here. I went and had a chat with Tony Fido and I was like, oh, I like this project. You know, he said, you sound really passionate. I think what's important also is to, you must have passion for what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So he was like, you sound really passionate. I just missed an opportunity on another project. I don't want to miss this opportunity. So let's see how we can package this for you. So he helped me put together the info memo and then we went shopping. Now I'd been speaking to a few people and I'd been asking them about if I was to do this project, would you invest? Right. And they're like, well, if when your info memo is ready, Let's see it. So it's important you focus on the paperwork. You do your numbers. I did the paperwork. I did the numbers. And I sent the document out. Um, and I was lucky we were oversubscribed by the due date. We were oversubscribed. Now, I only ended up owning probably about 25, 30% of this project. But it was better to own something than to own nothing. Right. And that was how I was able to get the Protea Hotel built. 
Um, and then I still continued to run Vic Lawrence. And Vic Lawrence is still running till tomorrow, by the way. I'm not there, but I have a beautiful, um, you know, um, lady called Ify or Sineme that runs it for me. So she does an incredible job. She has, you know, they, I mean, I look in to see what they're doing. I have a, I still have an office there. We st- I still go there. It's in VI. Um, but they're doing really great things. I'm really proud of all the work that Vic Lawrence has, is doing and continues to do. That's such an interesting story. So here you are running Vic Lawrence and in the same natural progression, you set up a training facility and then you change lanes. You decide that you want to start a talk show. Mm. You know, that's not a that's not a pivot. That's like a quantum leap. So I'm just wondering what was going on (laughs) in your mind and, and how did you make that shift? Yeah, it was it was it was it was really weird. Um. I mean, I loved running Vic Lawrence and I still am passionate about people. I'm passionate about training. Um, I'm passionate about getting the best out of people. So that would, ne- that would never stop. But there was still, I think every so often I get an itch, you know, I get this itch that says, you know, I think maybe is it that I'm easily bored? Is it that I am hyper? But I mean, people have called me a serial entrepreneur, I guess, because I've done so many things over the years. There are even projects that you don't even know about that we haven't spoken about here. That I even had a store one time um, called Body Talk. It was very, it was similar to Body Shop. Right. And um, it was, we were selling all these products, you know, like strawberry shampoo and chocolate mm. Um, body moisturizer. We imported everything in from the UK and we set up on, a friend and I set up on our lower road, did that for many years. Um, then I, at some point I decided that I was going to invent something called the shopper's checkbook, which was a book of checks that um, you could go into certain shops and they would give you a discount oh. if you got to the shop. So basically we went around just asking all the different shops in Lagos for discounts and then okay. we'd put them into a checkbook. And each time you wanted to go to Sweet Sensation or Rough and Tumble or whatever it was at that time, show them the check, cut it out and you get a 10% discount. It didn't work, but it's okay. I ended up owing a lot of money to the guy that printed the checkbooks for me. It took me a while to, took me a while to pay him off, but eventually I paid off all those debts. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's interesting that you mentioned those things because I, I wondered, were there any businesses that failed or, you know, is she the 1% that just no, succeeded no, no. every time? So the, yes, those ones, those ones, they didn't. Yes. I mean, body talk didn't fail, but it never made any money basically. So you would stock, you would sell items and you would take the same money to buy more items and you would sell them. So the margins were just not there. So I always say that if it is, I mean, one thing I'm conscious of now is scale. If the business can't scale and if you can't have a hundred body talks all over Nigeria or anywhere, what is the essence? What is the point? Because the margins are so small on some of these things that it's inconsequential. And, you know, so, so those businesses didn't function. But to move quickly into, yes, I was very passionate about Vic Lawrence. And then I suddenly wake up and I get this itch again for something more, something more. But when I realized it with the benefit of hindsight, that's something more had haunted right. me all my life. I mean, I, I lived in England, brought up in England. You're forever being asked the most ridiculous questions about who you are and where you come from. Um, and I decided that hmm. a, a friend of mine actually said to me that I was living my dreams through Vic Lawrence in a way. And that if I really want to move into the world of interviewing and being out in the public, I should move into that and do it. But I was, again, it was another leap of, here you are, having set up this consultancy firm, having done Oakwood Park. Right. Now you're going to go and become 
um, a talk show hostess. And I remember telling um, someone, may he, may he so rest in, in peace now, Uncle Tayo um, Adeniroku at GT Bank. I said, Uncle T, I'm, I want to set up, a, I want to do my own talk show. Da, 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 da. He said, eh, you want to become a TV presenter? Is that all? I was like, Uncle Tino is more than that, you know. But eventually he understood. But initially he couldn't really understand why I wanted to go and do that. But I realized at that point, and I think it's very important to listen to God. Well, I do. And it's up to you. You may believe in God, you may not be, but I happen to believe in God. And he whispers these things, literally whispers them to me, that it's time for you to do this. It's time for you to do that. So every single time that I've made a move, it's kind of been a whisper and then I wait, I wait for those signs to reconfirm if the whisper is really what he's saying I should do. And it's kind of guided me over the years, you know. So, again, when it was time for Moments with Mo, the whisper came again that, listen, you need to be talking to people that need to be showcased for good. Mm-hmm. You need to showcase the continent. You, we need to be telling our own stories. I mean, it's become very cliche now. It's very cliche now to say, oh, yes, we're changing the narrative and da, 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 da. Yeah, but, you know, we were, this is something that was part and parcel of my journey um, mm. all the way back then. Even the, even the interview that I did with Hillary Clinton in 2008, which was just a year or two after I'd started Women's Remove, very much was about the fact that how do we change this stereotypical view that the world and the West have of us? So, again, in that interview, she said, Mo, People, more people like you need to be speaking on the behalf of Africa. Right. So it, starting the talk show was very important for me in that it gave me a voice. It gave a lot of people a voice. You know, I mean, over the last few days during the lockdown, I've been posting some old archives for, from going, digging into my archives and bringing out, you know, little clips from some of the right. interviews I've done. And, and people that are now fully grown and married are like, oh my God, I watched that when I was at secondary school. And I watched this when I was, I'm thinking, oh my God, am I that old? But it's okay mm-hmm. because they have fond memories of the things we did back in the day, as we say. And I thoroughly enjoyed what I did. You know, all those interviews I had, all the people I engaged, the stories were so moving. They were so touching. I mean, some of them were very sad, you know, Um, some of them were very happy, but what it did was to give us a voice to be able to speak about the things that are important to us as Africans, as Nigerians. And that's what Moments with Mo did for me. Hmm. Talking about scaling, so how did you take Moments with Mo, a talk show, and make it a media empire? Quickly after doing Moments with Mo, again, I I wanted to stay in the media space, but I felt that there was a need to do more and find ways of engaging more. Um, So from Moments with Mo, um, it was still ongoing. I wanted to become a producer and have all these different shows um, that were going to be on air. Um, So the second show we did was called The Debaters. Um, And the debaters basically gave young people an opportunity to speak about things that were important to them. So imagine pop Mm. idols or the X Factor, but rather than them singing, they're talking. Um, They would be given a topic, they would research the topic, they would speak about it for an agreed amount of time and would select winners. And the winner got a car and they got a cash prize. And I went back to Uncle T. God bless him. And may he continue to rest in peace. I said, Uncle T., I'm doing this show. Will you please sponsor? Would guarantee Trust Bank sponsor? And he said, okay, Mo, I can see all the hard work you're doing. We will sponsor it. So they sponsored it. They got benefits in terms of all the advertising, all the advertising around the show. And whoever won actually got a job at GT Bank as well at that time. Um, So, yeah. So um, I did the debaters. And then the third show I did was called Niger Diamonds. 
And the name for me, it was all about the fact that there are so many incredible people in Nigeria that nobody knows, but they're doing all these incredible things. It's time to celebrate them. So I went along to Diamond mm-hmm. Bank, um, had a meeting with Uzama um, at the time, and I said, this show, you guys need to buy it because it's got the name Diamond in the name. And he was like, so it's important to find synergies and alliances with those that you're trying to market or sell things to. And he said, Mo, I'm going to buy this. We're going to sponsor it. And that was how we launched our third show called Niger Diamonds. Um, so for me, it was about finding different ways of giving, you know, Nigerians and Africans a voice. And that's what we've done. But then came again the fact that we had to do more. And that more was starting Ebony Life Television. Um, so come 2013, again, the itch came. No, the itch didn't come in 2013. 2013 is when we launched all the work came about four years before then. Right. So lots of going up and down, trying to convince MultiChoice to give us the platform, the presentations, the trips to South Africa, the scheduling, the budgeting. Of course, we moved to Cross River State, to Calabar, hmm. um, where we launched um, Ebony Life. I'll be forever grateful to, um, you know, um, His Excellency, um, Leo Limoke, and his beautiful wife, Obioma, who welcomed us to, um, to Calabar. So, well, can we talk about that? Going from doing the talk show to actually starting Ebony Life TV. Mm. That was a huge scaling up. Yeah, it was a huge scaling up. Can you just speak to, you know, the value of these partnerships? Now, the, the, th- the thing about partnerships is you've got to find value. The partner must find value in what you're offering. The reason why we were able to scale up and go and start Ebony Life TV in Calabar was because of the value that His Excellency thought we would bring to the, to, the, to the project, in that there was a place called Tinapa that had built this incredible studio, but it had never been used because the right partner had never come along. So I was actually in Calabar to interview His Excellency for Moments with Mo. Had nothing whatsoever to do with Tinapa. But at this time also, I had a sponsor for Moments with Mo, who said to me, if you don't start getting involved in social media, we're going to cut off your sponsorship. So I then got someone in PR and I said, listen, I need to get onto Twitter. I need to get onto Instagram. I mean, till tomorrow, I mean, I I mean, I never really did understand it very well at the beginning. And I always had somebody manage all my handles for me. Um, But this particular time, I sent her, it was on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I sent a message saying, Happy New Year, everyone. Greetings from beautiful Mm. Calabar. Someone now said to me, oh, what's happening to Tinapa? I didn't even know much about this place called Tinapa. But the next day when I was interviewing the governor, Nzan Ogbe, who was special um, assistant and advisor to um, the governor, said, come and meet His Excellency. So I went into His Excellency's office and, and the first thing that I said was, oh, Your Excellency, I drove past Tinapa yesterday. Very beautiful. And he said, oh, yes, yes, you know, it's a beautiful place. We're looking for someone to partner with on there. So in the back of my mind was, you're looking for someone to partner with. And then I'm thinking, I've got Ebony Live TV here. Da, 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 da. Anyway, one thing led to another. That's how we, from that conversation, is how I ended up moving to Calabar. Right. I mean, I lived and worked in Calabar for three years. It was, I, I, I mean, talk about leaving your comfort zone. I mean, I am a Lagosian. I mean, I mean I'm a Lagosian. I mean, I'm used to the, living the Lagos life. All of a sudden, now I'm in Calabar. But it was a beautiful experience. The people were so loving. We moved about 120 to 150 people from Lagos to Calabar. We had to get a common 
accommodation for everyone. It was crazy. So not only were we running a TV channel, we were also running guest houses. We were running all kinds of operations to make sure that our operation in Calabar could survive because I had expatriates. I had expatriates that had left their countries to come and work in Nigeria. Um, not only some of them were only used to maybe big cities, but now we're taking them to this other smaller town city, which was beautiful. Eventually we all got on and we, we loved being there. Um, and that's how we started Ebony Life Television. Right. If, it, if we hadn't got to Calabar, we may never have started it. Um, and that's, that, that's, that's how that journey began. Yeah. Wow. And then after, after a few years, we found that it was difficult to continue to work from there um, because we had to keep bringing in talent from Lagos. There's only a limited number of flights in and out of Calabar all the time. It just became very expensive for the company. So we had to eventually move back to Lagos. Um, and we've been in Lagos ever since. That's very interesting. That is very interesting. And then, then you got an itch again. Then, oh, yes. I got an itch again a year later to set up <laughs> Ebony Light Films. So not only were we doing TV, we're like, okay, the TV business is working. Let's get into the film business. Let's make a movie. I mean, I got into film almost accidentally in that when I was turning 50, I wanted to do something different rather than just have a, a, a your typical party. I said, oh, let me make a movie. You know, I'm in the TV business now. Let me invite everybody to come and watch this movie on my birthday, you know. And then I dreamt up this story idea about what the film would be about. Then we got the story written. Um, several people actually had a hand in writing the story. But eventually, B. Bandele, the director, wrote the last draft of the story. And um, But we didn't end up doing the story before my birthday. It just wasn't ready. So my birthday came and went, and I had a beautiful 50th birthday. Um, but then the next thing was, what do I now do with this story? My, birth my birthday is gone. So I could have just buried it and said, listen, there's no need. But I felt we'd spent so much time on creating this story. Let's make the, let's make the movie. So we went ahead and we made 50 hmm. the movie. And as you know, the rest is history. Then came the wedding party. And for me, the wedding, the wedding party was very much, I was at a wedding in Lagos. And as you are, I was looking at all the drama. I won't say which wedding. I was looking at all the drama going on at this wedding. And I was like, wow, right. I need to make a movie about a wedding. And that was how the idea came for the wedding party. So, so how has it been sourcing talent? What, what's the talent like on the continent? We have a huge amount of talent. We've got a huge amount of people that are willing um, that are skilled. We do need to upskill. We do need to train more. Um, but we, we have survived adequately well in the last seven years that we've been in Ebony Life making TV and making films. Right. Um, it's, you know, we have had to lean on international talent as well in terms of some of our crew. Hmm. But mo all our actors, I have to say, have all been Nigerian, except for Wedding Party 2, where there was the uh, European English bride. But outside of that and her parents, outside of that, really, um, all our actors that, I, that for all the original programs we have done have all pretty much been Nigerian. Um, there's Mawuli, okay, Mawuli is Ghanaian, um, but 99% of the, of the actors have been, and they're fantastic. I mean, look at the talents, look at Castle and Castle, look at Sons of the Caliphate. I mean, look at the yeah. governor. I mean, 
you know, look at all the incredible films we've made. I mean, we have talent in Nigeria. We certainly do. And we're blessed in that regard. Um, and like today, I was, I just sent a message out on my Instagram today that I was so happy to see the Blood and Water, um, which is a Netflix original, hmm. but it's an African story made by Africans with unknown African actors in the global space. It's number one. It's trending number one on Netflix right now in the United States of America in the top 10. For me, I had wow. goosebumps. I was wow. like, wow, this is incredible that such a story can be number one, which means our stories can travel, yeah. which means that people are interested in what we have to say. So I'm really excited that this is really our time. It's our moment of where we can get our stories out there. That's a good point for me to, to pivot to the conversation around Netflix, you know, because it's, it's like I, you talk about this stamp that you have at, at Ebony Life where you say made in Africa to the for, for the world, for the world, you know, and yes. all of a sudden the world is paying attention to African entertainment, to our music yes. and now our movies. Um, Netflix taking this big move to, to, to celebrate and create content on yes. the platform. It's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And, and, I, and I wonder just your reflections on what, what do you think that means for, for, for Nollywood? What does that mean for, for the movie industry on the continent as a whole? It gives us a place where we can tell our stories to a global audience. As you know, Ted Sarandos, who is one of the most senior people in Netflix, came to Nigeria mm. just before COVID became COVID to meet with the industry. So you can see how important we are to them. And it's important for us to take our rightful place in that we must create our stories. We must give them life. We must do them to international standards, put them out there so that the world can see who we are. The challenge, I think, often with ignorance is that people don't know who we are. Um, and if we're not telling our stories, no one will ever know who you are. Mm. So it's important that we are recognized. It's important right. that we share our stories, good and bad, so that people have an understanding of, oh, okay, interesting. Oh, this is how Africans do their weddings. Oh, this is how Africans do their burials. Oh, this is how the schools in Africa are. The world is truly, you know, one, it's truly connected now. And the generation, the, the, this generation of millennials don't have some of the hangups that the older generations have. They watch content that comes from anywhere, so long as it is a good story that they find relatable and that is told well. So for the first time in the history of storytelling comes an opportunity for us as Africans, as Nigerians, hmm. to tell our stories. I'm really excited about the future. Really, really excited. And as you can see, if you go to Netflix, a lot of our shows are on there, you know, from Castle and Castle right. to Sons of the Caliphate to 50, the series, 50, the movie. Um, and we have some new shows launching on there soon. The Governor is coming soon. Derry is coming soon. Your Excellency, the movie, the Royal Hibiscus Hotel. So all these projects are going to be launching on Netflix really soon. Yeah. So in the midst of covid how viable does the movie industry in Africa remain as, as an investment destination? Well, I think if you look at COVID um, and the impact that it's had over the last six to eight weeks, we've all been at home. And what have we done whilst we've been at home? We've been binging Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, 
you know, and all these other platforms, um, or we've been reading a book or we have been listening to music. Um, there isn't much else to do outside of that. So it shows you how important um, the sector is. Um, I know personally as Ebony Life um, Media, we are in development on a lot of our projects. So we're scripting, we're talking to cast, um, you know, we're doing all of that pre-production stuff, waiting for um, there to be a safe time when we can obviously go back into getting out into production and start physical principal photography. The part of my business that worries me is Ebony Life Place mm. that we just opened before Christmas. Um, as you know, it's a hotel. It's got restaurants in there. Um, it's It's got the cinemas in there. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful luxury, you know, resort, um, which we opened just in December. Um, but three months after opening, COVID has taken the world by, by surprise. And um, we just, I just, I think I was probably one of the first businesses to say, listen, we need to keep everyone safe. Our staff needs to be kept safe. Our customers that come in need to be kept safe. So we, I just decided to close, um, you know, Ebony Life Place down sometime in early either late March, late February or early March sometime um, before the lockdown actually started. We just said, listen, everybody go home, go home. It's not safe. There's really no point. Um, and we're still closed and I won't open up again until I'm certain mm. that I'm able to make sure that I've put in all the necessary, um, you know, um, gadgets and sanitation equipment and everything else that would ensure that we are COVID compliant so that when you do come back, you're able to have the comfort of knowing um, that you're safe. Right. It's very interesting. Um, so, so where do you see where do you see Ebony Life in the next five years? In the next five years, I see Ebony Life having evolved as to a much much more recognizable global brand um, in the in the global space. That's what I see in the next five years. Yeah, yeah. I see the brand being more recognizable on a, at a global level. Yeah. Well, last thing I wanted to touch on was um, I noticed that you had started when you turned 50, you started this award ceremony. It was something about song women celebrating unsung women. Yes, it's the Sisterhood Awards. The Sisterhood Awards. Yes, and yes. Is it still going on? We haven't, we didn't run it last year, um, but it is something, now that Ebony Life Place does exist, it is something I would like to run again. So we would like to bring it back. Yes, yes, very much so. It's important um, to keep celebrating each other. Um, and it's important for women to celebrate other women. So for me, that's, that, that idea started when I was 50 and I want to continue to do it. I mean, we do it informally, but I want, to, I want it to be formal. So yes, post-COVID, Sisterhood Awards will be back. We look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Mo Abudu, founder and CEO of Ebony Life Media. The African entertainment industry is bursting with creativity. And in spite of the global downturn, shows a lot of promise. Investment will help create jobs, develop talent, and help businesses scale. We celebrate businesses like Ebony Life, and we continue to watch this space. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe. And while you're at it, please leave us a review so we know how we're doing. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.